35 of etc. etc. with young Southpaw. That's moi. Me if you ain't got your French tongue on. So I was thinking, love will tear us apart, you know. I mean, maybe. I guess that's a, a possibility. I'd certainly never thought of that before I heard the song. It's kind of dark, you know. Then you look at those photos of Joy Division, they're all black and white as well. I mean, real gloomy. But you know, love, like I said, maybe. But you know what would definitely tear a couple apart? Bears! I mean, why wasn't it called Bears Will Tear Us Apart? Same number of syllables, you know. I'd have to think that just by by using logic, Ian Curtis would have thought of that before love ever occurred to him. Comes first alphabetically, too. I mean, I guess an A word would be an even... An even better choice, but, hmm, can't really think of anything. I mean, axes? I mean, no, see, that's two syllables. And they chop more than tear. I mean, So I Married an Axe Murder, you know that movie? They had a pretty good soundtrack, you know? Ned's Atomic Dustbin doing Saturday Night by the Bay City Rollers. Boo Radley's covering the lies. There she goes. Swayed with my insatiable one. Now that's pretty dark when you're talking about axe murderers. Insatiable. Woo! I wonder if New Order were even considered for that soundtrack. They could have done like, well, I guess lions and tigers and bears was more of a chant, not really a song. But I mean... You know how they had a certain fondness for, like, frog and sheep noises and whatnot? On singles, no less. I mean, they could have thrown the lions and tigers and bears chant into their tune for the So I Married an Axe Murderer soundtrack. A knowing nod to their secret history. But wait a minute, what if, like, New Order... Covered the entire Wizard of Oz soundtrack. And like if you pressed play on it at the beginning of So I Married an Axe Murder, it was like the most psychedelic experience ever. But I mean, yeah, again, axes and definitely axe murderers chop more than tear. I mean, it could be a combo, I guess, though... Not so snappy of a song title, you know? Axes and axe murderers will chop and tear us apart. Rarely do such themes make it into the singles charts. Though So I Married an Axe Murderer was ultimately a film about love. So this is quite problematic. But like what? Strictly tears, you know. Eyes, I guess. Not in the same way, of course. That'd be crazy if tears tear, tore. I mean, now we're in Pixie's territory. No pun intended. 
But that'd be crazy if Debaser was actually a cover of Love Will Tear Us Apart. Done to point out exactly what I'm saying here about the tearing. Imagine if Salvador Dali went on to sing for Joy Division. They just kept the name after Ian Pats and like Peter Murphy ended up being their chauffeur. Woo! And that's what the Duran Duran song is all about. I mean, it makes perfect sense. If you want to hear more of this story, and believe me, there's, there's a whole lot more. You can find it as episodes 36 and 39 of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. Available at youngsouthpaw.com and wherever good podcasts are found. Those episode titles are Bizarre Bear Triangles and number 39 is Schrodinger's Halen. That's right. Schrodinger's Halen. About being both in and out of Van Halen, of course. Now let's get to this week's episode of this podcast. We got Mr. Mark Reeder on the show. In 1978, he traveled from Manchester to Germany to do some record shopping, and he never left. Mark's got some really great stories about 1980s Berlin. He put on Joy Division's only gig there. He made that film B-movie, Lust and Sound, in West Berlin, 1979 to 1989. It's awesome. You should check it out. And he took the film like around the world to China and Colombia. He told me all about this and a whole lot more. So let's get to it. All right. We're here today with Mark Reeder. How you doing, man? Hello. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. So do you remember when you first fell in love with music as a kid? Oh, yeah. I, well, I, I don't remember the exact moment, but I do remember one particular thing was uh, when I was a little child about four, I was fascinated by this band called the Tornadoes. And they had this song called Telstar, yeah. which was about space, you know, and it was like back, back then it was the, the beginnings of the space race. And I remember seeing this band on the telly, you know, and they were playing uh, Telstar. The, you know, the bass player was a, was a German guy called Heinz and he had blonde hair and sunglasses and a polo neck sweater and he looked dead cool. And I was like, wow. And then, and then, you know, in the mornings on the radio, they play the record and I, and being a little child, you always want to hear it again and again and yeah. again. And it, and they only ever played it once. And my mother would get really infuriated and eventually she dragged me down to Rumbelow's record shop in Denton where I grew up as a child. And, and she gave me the money and said, yeah, go to that lady and ask her to, <laughs> so you want to tell her you want to buy this record. You know? and, so, and, so, and so I did, you know, and, and, and that was my first record. And uh, I still got it, actually. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, it doesn't play very well. It's, it's like someone's had the dinner off it, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's like that's, that, that was my first record. Yeah. And after that, I really can't. And then, and then I think after that, I was like captivated by Doctor Who. And the theme of Doctor Who, the beginning, this kind of like surreal synthesizer. I didn't know what synthesizer was because there wasn't such a thing back then. It was just this electronic music, but it sounded so futuristic, you know. And it was dead scary, and I loved it, you know. But you, but back then you couldn't buy it. It was just like just from the telly, you know. And I was completely captivated by that. And I think that obviously kind of influenced my kind of like sort of obsession, if you like, synthesizers. Obviously, this Doctor Who thing. And then uh, I was kind of like 
pretty much obsessed. I'm still am actually pretty much obsessed with like Jerry, uh, Jerry Anderson's uh, puppet series, like uh, Fireball XL5, Supercar, Fireball XL5, Thunderbird, Stingray, you know, yeah. Captain Scarlet, that kind of thing. I, and I, f- I found his music really thrilling and kind of gripping. And it was like, so it was like, you know, you've had this puppet series, which was for kids, but it was quite kind of adult at the same time, you know, and it sounded so like, like a Hollywood movie, but it was just for a TV show, for a kid's TV show, you know, and that, that's kind of like guided me through my entire life, really. Awesome. <laughs> so the spaciness sort of hit you right away. <laughs> Yeah, I've been I've been obsessed with space since being a really small child. <laughs> you know, even 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 in the seventies when you know I started drugs and kind of experimenting with like you know like psychedelic music and stuff. Um, and I was into Hawkwind and things like that. Yeah, nice. I built myself this space box. You know, because I, I I come from Manchester, right? And in Manchester, it's notorious for its weather, and we have like it rains all the time. You know, I, it was only when I came to Germany that I realised the pavements were actually could were actually dry on. You know, because it was always raining in Manchester. You never saw the sun from one week end to the next, and it was always grey and miserable, and you never saw the stars. You know, so I built myself the star. I built this box. I got this like big, huge cardboard box, and I got these kind of blue filter papers from you know, like stage lights. Yeah, yep. they are filters on lights back then. It's kind of a gel kind of thing. I got a load of those, like, and uh, and I painted with. Um, like luminous paint, I've painted like dots on these on this blue thing and put these kind of like layers in this box, so it doesn't like space, you know. In my, in the, and I could light it up at night and just kind of like trip out of this, listening to Hotland. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So in 1978, you went to buy some records in Germany, and your life forever changed. Yeah, well, I'd already started going to Germany when I, okay. when I became eighteen. I was like, I was like obsessed. You know, I, I, my first venture to Europe was in like in the very early seventies with my parents, and, and we went to, on a day trip to France. And back then, you needed a passport and you needed a visa to get into France, you know, and um, like you do now. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and I was like, wow, it's another world, you know, because I grew up in Manchester in this council house, and you know. And, our, our kind of like dinner was like, you know, fish and chips and baked beans and toast and things like this. You know, it wasn't anything special. <laughs> and I went to France and they had croissants and all this kind of fancy food. And I was like, oh, they, have a, they have a completely different lifestyle here in this kind of like continent, you know. And by the, when I got to, when I was about sort of like, you know, 16, 17, I thought, as soon as I get a passport, I'm going to go and explore. So I, when I was 18, I got a passport and I went to, on a trip, to, I went to actually to, to France. I went to, to look at Dunkirk, you know, like where the British army had kind of like tried to escape during the war. And then I traveled to hitchhiked into Germany uh, with, with the obsession of like, you know, I've go to these like German record shops and buy some records. There were so many records, I couldn't carry everything. So I, I, was like, I thought I'm going to have to go back again. And I went back a couple of times, you know, and every time, every time I kind of went, I would, talk about people to people about what you know the rest of germany where you know where's good where possibly might get a, a, a great place to find some records in you know hamburg was always a, a suggestion you know munich forget it but like hamburg was always good and every time i asked people about berlin they'd always go oh you don't want to go there what do you want to go there for it's, it's always like it was always like mm. you know it's not it's not really it, i think it kind of for west germans it was like a bit of a it wasn't it wasn't representative of what 
West Germany kind of thought themselves to Spain, you know, it wasn't clean and shiny. It was kind of something else, you know, it was mm. occupied in the middle of the communist state, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, oh, I bet if no one goes there, I bet there's loads of record shops that have loads of records that I can buy. And so, so I thought I'm going to go and I and eventually managed to hitchhike to Berlin in 1978. And I never left. I, I arrived here thinking I was going to go and buy a load of records. I, I eventually did, but... <laughs> what the city kind of had was this something that, that no other city actually had. You know, it wasn't just the fact that they had a wall around it, which kind of made it unique, but it was like the ambience of the entire city was co completely different to any other city that I'd been to and traveled to, you know. So I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I'm going I'm to just explore a little bit and stay a little bit and, you know, check it out for a few weeks and then I'll go back, you know, back to Britain. <laughs> and I never did. 40 years later, we're still here. Over four years. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And you were factories man in Berlin. Well, I, I knew Joy Division before, you know, I mean, I knew Joy Division, I mean, Ian Curtis even before he was in a band, you know, um, and it was like, Rob Gretton, who became their manager, was a DJ in one of the, DJ in one of the clubs in, in Manchester. And it, I used to work in a record shop uh, from being a teenager, actually. And, um, you know, I, I'd supply these DJs all their records and, you know, make, make suggestions and stuff. And when and when Joy Division actually made their first single, they came into the shop and asked me, yeah, can you put it in the shop and sell it? You know, which I did, of course. Uh, an ideal for living. Mm -hmm. Um and so, 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 you know, I knew, I knew the people who were involved and I knew, actually knew Tony Wilson as well um, from like, you know, from being 14 almost, you know, and he'd come in every Saturday, Saturday evening just before closing time and asked me to put some records aside, get new records, any cool ones put to one side. And, 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 and I kind of supplied all these people with music, you know, and um, make suggestions and I'd order stuff for them in thinking this is probably like that. And, and so I got kind of really kind of involved with them. And then when I actually moved to Germany, the first thing that Rob Gretton said was like, can you, can you, can I send you some records and you can send them to the radio stations and maybe we'll get some airplay and you never know, we might get a gig, you know, and no one was remotely interested <laughs> in this miserable band from Manchester. They didn't care. You know, we didn't get, I didn't get any reaction at all, not even a thank you, you know. Wow. Yeah. And uh, you, you put on their one show. What what was that like? Well, I, you know, I, I was thinking all the all the time. You know, like, I think I think probably the reason why people don't really get understand this music was because the fact that they don't know they've never seen Joy Division perform live. They don't know what they like. You know, so they have to see them to be able to understand. And and uh, I went to the Kant Kino, which was a kind of like a middle size kind of like maybe 200 people would fit in kind of club, you know. It was actually a cinema, but they had gigs on. I was seated, you know, <laughs> a seated venue. Oh, wow. But they'd have gigs on there, you know, and like new wavy gigs, you know. And um, I thought, you know, Connie Konchak is a bit of a, an arty guy and he likes films and music and he has a ponytail. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it's, you know, it's, a bit, it's, a, it's enough of a hippie to understand, but he's, a, but he's also kind of adventurous having kind of bands on and stuff like that. I went to him and he was like, who are they? You know, I'm not interested at all. He's like, never heard of them. I said, you got to hear the records. you got to hear the records. And I, you know, gave him the, the singles and gave him the, the the album, you know, didn't hear anything. And I, and I kept going to to watch bands, of course, there. And I'd see him and say, have you thought about it? And nothing. And then, and then 
the Joint Division started to get, after they released Unknown Pleasures, they started to get quite a lot of like um, recognition in the British music papers, you know, and like, it's like, oh, this is actually a really good album. This is that's not so bad. And so then he kind of became a bit aware, you know, and he was like, well, if you hear them doing a tour and coming to Europe, just let me know and maybe we can put them on, you know. And then Rob Gretton told us, yeah, we might possibly have a gig in Cologne. I was like, and like, oh, you can come to Berlin. It's dead. It's really close. <laughs> Berlin's really close, you know, it's like, it's like a 10 hour drive, you know, like just it's really close to come to Berlin, you know. They had look on the map, it's about this far, you know. And uh, and then they did, they, they said, All right, they'll come, you know. And, and I said to Connie, they had it in Cologne and they're going to come. So we managed to get this gig on. I, I, they had a like Dutch promoters team working for them, and I'm like, Yeah, you've got to come to Berlin. <laughs> anyway, we managed to pull it off, you know, and and, and they came to Berlin. And it was in it was like twenty first of January nineteen eighty, and it was fucking freezing. It was like it was like minus God knows what, you know, snowing blizzards and everything. The the PA guys got lost in East Germany trying to come to back to Berlin, and the band got here. And I took them to East Berlin, showed them around, and then and we came to do this gig on the next the next day, and uh, fifty eight people came to the gig. Yeah. And it was like, and and I think the people, you know, they came and they came with this kind of like, not animosity, but kind of like a bit suspicious, really, about Joint Division because they didn't know where to kind of categorize them because they weren't punk and they weren't really new wave and they weren't the rock, you know, they were a bit of something else. And and this image of the first single with this kind of Hitler youth drummer on the front, the cover, and and the name Joy Division kind of resembling, you know, like what it came from, you know, being. The, the the whole house of the SS and everything. It was like, it had this kind of like right wingish kind of like tinge to the name and everything. And I think a lot of Germans were a bit kind of suspicious, you know. Mm. And then this band comes on stage and the first song, I mean, the PA was rubbish, actually. The guy who brought the PA, it was like a stereo, you know, that he brought with him, you know what I mean? It's like the PA cost like 15 quid a night, you know? and it was rubbish. You couldn't hear Ian singing at all. And one guy in the front, thinking that Bernard Sumner, who had the stage name of Bernard Albrecht, right. he thought he was German and he spoke German. So the guy shouting, you know, in, in German, turned the loud, turned the volume up of the voice, right? And, and Bernard just turns around and goes, speak fucking English, you German bastard. And it's like, it's, it was as if it just poured ice over the entire crowd. It's like, like the gig was almost virtually over then, you know, it was like, mm, right, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that was my... Uh, that was wow. my first and only <laughs> Joy Division gig. <laughs> and you mentioned East Germany. Last time we spoke, you were telling me about mm. the blues masses, which I just found fascinating. Can you uh, expound on that for anyone who might not know? Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've been coming to Berlin and loving checking out what West Berlin is all about. And so I also, you know, Berlin's a dual city. I had another side to it, the, the beyond the wall, you know, this East Berlin business, you know. What is all about communism and everything? Watchtowers and border guards and stuff. And story of myth, you know, the spy who came in from the cold and all that kind of stuff. The funeral in Berlin with Michael Caine, all these movies I'd seen as a kid, you know, I was like, near a what's in the city where it was all happening. And I just had to go and see this East Berlin business, you know. Yeah. And I went over for the first, the first day and it was fascinating. It was fascinating. It was like, it was like being, being down into another another era you know like another world kind of 
resembled the West in certain aspects, but on other ways it was just like being in this kind of like surreal like film set, you know, it was like Star Trek or something. It was like fascinating, you know, and I was like, wow, I have to come back, you know. I'll just come back the next day. I went the next day. It actually went every single day for about two weeks. <laughs> These Germans are a bit suspicious. You know? He's this <laughs> British guy coming over. Um, and 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 I eventually got to meet these kids. And you know, I was looking for for, for the for the underground scene of East Berlin. You know, thinking they've got to have one. You know, mm-hmm. they must have one for sure. They've got this kind of like tepid kind of progressive rock music. You know, trying like sort of like cross between uh, Genesis and Deep Purple and stuff, you know, like playing blues rock thing. Uh-huh. Bit, bit boring, you know, but like, I thought there must be something else. And I, I remember I um, saw this kid on the underground in East Berlin and he was wearing drain pipe trousers, had spiky hair, and I was like, oh, I bet he knows where the <laughs> underground is. And I, he got off the train and I jumped off and ran after him and collared him and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm British and... I spoke pidgin German then, you know. Managed, and he didn't speak any English at all, but I managed to kind of like, you know, explain I was looking for the for this for the underground scene, and I said if you if you hear of anything, if you hear of any gigs or anything, because like no, there's nothing like that here. It's all forbidden. Everything's forbidden. There's no there's no underground scene. I thought, well, you might if you hear of anything. Here's my name and address. You know, postcard. Just send me a postcard. You know, uh, tell me. You know, and I didn't hear anything from this kid ever ever again. You know. And uh, like about sort of like six months later, I got a letter from this girl asking to meet me in the Palast der Republik, which was like the East German Parliament. But they had a cocktail bar, which and a disco. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, no, I'll go meet her in this palatial building. You know. And um, and she just kind of like basically heard me out, and she kind of, she was involved in this underground scene, and she was like punk scene of East Germany. Punk rock was forbidden in East Germany, and so. She introduced me to a circle of friends and I got to know them. And, you know, as you do, you know, I was going over quite regularly and uh, with these kids and we'd go out for drinks and sit, sit in bars and stuff. And we were in one place and it had like these long trestle tables and we we're just sitting there chatting. And this one guy sat at the other end of the table, was like kind of sulking into his beer, just kind of like half listening to our conversation. And at one point he says to me, You're not from here, are you? Are you? you know? I don't like, no, I'm from England. And he's like, hey, England. And then his ch- attitude completely changed. And then he was like, I never met anyone from England before. You know, tell me about the music scene. You know, I like Pink Floyd and I like Jimi Hendrix. And I went, yeah, I like Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix too. And, you know, and we started talking and he told me that, and, you know, he had an electric guitar. And I was like, oh, do you play in a band? Because no, I'm not allowed to play. I don't have a license. What do you mean? I never got my license. And he explained to me, you needed a license to own an electric guitar. You needed a license to be able to play it in front of an audience and you had to pass a proficiency test to even be able to gain anywhere near a license to be able to play to an audience. And I was like, so where do you play your guitar? And he goes, in, in, a church, in the church, you know, what is called a blues mass. And I was like, what do you play? He goes, oh, yeah, I've cover versions like Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, that kind of thing. I'd never be able to play this outside of the church. And he said, they explained to me that the church is kind of like a silent protest against the communist regime and i was like oh, that's really interesting immediately thinking i could play with my band because in the meantime I'd, I'd been you know formed a band the unbekanten yeah which means the unknown and um nominous omen yeah and um you know i just thought oh, maybe i could do a gig with my band for my friends you know 
so I went to see the priest and uh, and he was like, it's not, it's a blues mass. It's not a gig. You know, so it's for prayers. You've got to pray. I'm like, yeah, I'll do everything. Anything you want me to do, you know, I'll jump through fiery hoops if you want me. <laughs> but no one had let me use their cassette players because I, I, I knew I wouldn't be able to take a drum machine and instruments. So, but, you know, I'd have to borrow everything there. You know, it's hard enough as it was, you know, finding someone who actually had an electric guitar or a bass guitar or an amplifier. You know, there weren't any shops that sold this stuff in East Berlin, you know. You couldn't just go to a shop and buy an electric guitar and amp and a cable and, you know, form a band. You know, it didn't happen. You could buy an acoustic guitar, you know, so you could sing Go Tell It on the Mountain in some, you know, beach somewhere, you know. But, you you know, an electric guitar was a, was a weapon, you know. And so it's really hard trying to get these instruments and I just wasn't going to happen. I thought it's never going to happen. And then I played a gig in, Hung, in, uh, in uh, Czechoslovakia, a secret gig in Czechoslovakia. They managed to get, because in Czechoslovakia they made guitars, not hungry in Czechoslovakia, they made electric guitars. And so they had, they had a couple of friends who had this equipment. And so I was able to perform the secret gig, illegally secret gig in Czechoslovakia for these dissident kids who went on to be, you know, become part of the revolution years later. And it was basically a gig for Czechoslovakia's most wanted. Yeah. All these kind of, you know, political dissidents converged on this kind of farmhouse in the middle of nowhere on the outskirts of Bohemia and I did this gig I thought if it's possible there it's bound to be possible in East Berlin but it wasn't going to happen and, so, and at, at the same time I'd already become kind of involved with this German punk rock band called the Die Toten Hosen who, that, that means the dead trousers right and um, it's an expression meaning there's nothing happening here ah, okay. uh, and, and, and they they you know, I, I recorded all their music, all their, all, the, all their records onto cassettes and smuggled these cassettes for my friends into East Berlin so they could listen to this music. And they understood that. I thought maybe it's probably a better, a better and easier thing because they're quite conventional. They don't need cassette players or anything like that. They, they just need a guitar, bass and drums and they're off we go, you know. Eventually we'll find this stuff and ask, ask these girls, you know, we could do this gig if you can find someone who will give us like the guitars and amplifiers and stuff. If you find them, we had to piece it together, you know, guitar from him, bass guitar from him, drum kit from him, and um, and eventually we did. We found this band called Plan Los, who, had, who were a punk, an if forbidden punk band who had most of the equipment that we needed, like one amplifier <laughs> with about ten inputs. <laughs> Honestly, it was one amplifier. I'd like an input for bass guitar, guitar <laughs> vocals, everything. Sounded fucking awful, but it didn't matter. It was about the the, the thing that we were going to do, you know. And I said yeah. to these girls, you know, like, do you really want to do this? Because if if you get caught, you know, if we get caught doing this, I'll just get thrown out of East Germany and I'll never be able to come back again. I'll never be able to smuggle your cassettes ever again. You'll never probably never see me again, but your lives will change forever because you'll probably end up in jail and... God knows what will happen, you know. And they were like, "Yeah, we want to do it," because you know? they they wanted that thrill that I had when I smuggled cassettes into East Germany. They wanted a similar kind of thrill, I think. And they were just like, just they just didn't give a shit really anything against the government, you know. And so we did this blues mass with the Toten Hosen, you know, hoping that no, you know, we invited thirty people, hoping that no, none of our friends would actually tell on us before, because we knew that, you know, like. 
somebody somewhere within our circle of friends is bound to be a Stasi informer, but you just didn't know who it was. You know, I, I didn't know if it was my girl, these girl, they weren't my girlfriends, but they were girlfriends. And if these friends were maybe also part of this, you know, I haven't yet never, yeah, no idea, you know, but we just kind of assumed that out of the 30 people, maybe one person might be, you know. And, and as it happened, nothing happened. You know, I, all through the gig, I expected the door to be kicked in and the stars would come bursting and arrest everybody. But we pulled it off, you know, and had prayers after. And, um, <laughs> and everybody went home, you know. And then, and then this, this concert became the thing of legend because what it did was it, it kind of in, inspired all these other punk bands and young kids to be able to go to their local parish and say to the, you know, can, can we, use your church as a practice room or, you know, can we do a gig in your church, you know, and do a blues mass. You know? And it kind of kicked off. And throughout the whole of East Germany, all these kind of like punk bands started to emerge and play in the church, you know, and it was like, they, you know, it kicked off this the whole thing in East Germany. It was really quite an inspiring event. And we didn't realise it until years later, actually, that we'd done, when we'd done this, that it, that it had caused this kind of knockoff effect throughout the whole of East Germany. And wow. this was stuff of legend, you know. And then in 1988, I, in the meantime, I'd met this band called Division, like The Vision. Mm. And um, they said, yeah, we want to do a benefit concert, Blues Mass in the Pankow area. You know, do you think, you know, if the Tolton Hosen are going to be coming to play in Berlin at a time, let us know and then we'll do it, we'll coordinate it with, with them, you know with their visit to Berlin. So I was like, okay, I'll tell you next time I know they're coming. A friend of mine in West Berlin was having a benefits concert for his magazine that he'd just been sued <laughs> for defamation of character, somebody that he'd written about. And the Tolton Holden were coming to Berlin to play at this concert for the magazine. The magazine was called Ich und mein Staubsauger, which means me and my vacuum cleaner. It's <laughs> a bit ambiguous. Anyway, so, so, so this, this, the Holzen came to West Berlin to play this benefits concert. And then I arranged with everybody that would go over to East Berlin and do this secret gig in Pankow with Division for 30 people again, you know, like in this church. But the concert was disguised as the concert for starving Romanian orphans. That was the kind of like the, the, the reason for doing the gig. And, and, and the Tottenham weren't announced, it was just Division were going to be doing the gig and have a support act. Ah. And to, to vision like Tottenham was just, just going to turn up and play. You know? And in the meantime, I'd also befriended an American soldier who uh, had bought a car so we could smuggle in things into his place uh, easier because American soldiers didn't get control. And so we were able to smuggle the instruments of the Tottenham's own instruments this time, we could smuggle the guitars into his belief. And we get to this church. And outside, there's this police car sitting there. And I'm thinking, oh, dear, that's not good. <laughs> and we're looking at the churchyard. There's like 600 people. And I'm thinking, like, oh, no, we couldn't keep the trap shut. You know, like, they, they, they only invited 30 people. And that was like 600. And I thought, this is going to go down really badly. And the, the priest comes and goes, no, the police have said that the Tottenham's and can't play. <laughs> like, oh, man, how are you going to tell all these kids, you know? You've got to tell them. You've got to tell, announce it to the, these guys that you know. It's, it's, it's told and they're not playing. I said, "Well, tell them a band from Dresden's going to play instead." <laughs> and it's like, "What band?" I went, "Look, 
just say a band from Dresden's going to play. The stars, they don't know what Tottenham's look like. So police certainly don't, you know. So by the time they finally figured it out, you know, we'll have already done the gig. And so it did exactly that. And uh, and Tottenham's and played for three quarters of an hour. Now, obviously, in the 600 people, there's obviously quite a few Stasi informers, you know. <laughs> but the thing was, was like, they wanted to see the gig. Right? Mm. So, so they really wanted to see the gig. You know, there were Stasi informers. They still wanted to see the gig. So, so they let the band play for three quarters of an hour. And then they thought, I'm going to have to, going to have to say something <laughs> because otherwise they'll start, you know, the informers are going to get into trouble if they found out, <laughs> you know, you knew, but you didn't say anything. And so after three quarters of an hour, we have to stop. And, uh, and we thought, oh, you know, we got away with that, you know, pretty much. But then later on, everybody's flat started to get like not broken into, but um, you know, infiltrated by the Stasi, and the Stasi would go through all the stuff and leave kind of little kind of hints to show that they'd been there and stuff. And it started to get really dark. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then my you know, I was like kind of associated with this band Division, the, the 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 East German record label, which was called Amiga. They were like, in, it was the, the authorities were in two minds. What do we do with this band Division? Because after this Totenhausen gig, the Division suddenly their state, status come, suddenly went through the roof. You know, they played with the Totenhausen. You know, they'd arranged this secret gig, and the state was like, oh, do we do we ban them? Or do we sign them? If we if we ban them, they'll become martyrs. If we sign them, we can control them. Mm. And so they signed them to Amiga. And then they asked me if I'd produce their record, which was another way of controlling me. You know? oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. And, I, and as it happened, it happened to be the last album of the of the, of the GDR. Because as I'm making this record in the last like months of it, 1989. East Germany is starting to fall apart, you know, and I'm trying to make this record in East Germany, East Berlin, you know, as all these kind of people are trying to leave the country and upheaval, political upheavals happening and thinking, God, what's going on? And I finished recording the record, recording the album, recording all the tracks, finished recording on the 2nd of November, 1989. And then I decided to go with a few friends on a holiday to Romania. Yeah. Traveling via Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary in a car, you know, down to, to Nikolai Ceausescu's Romania in the winter of 1989. And we left on the night of the 8th and 9th of November 1989 to, go, to embark on this trip a week later. You know, after finishing recording, I thought I needed, I needed a little bit of break and a bit of distance so I could think, you know, go on this little holiday a few weeks on, away. And then when I come back, I'll produce the record. Leave on the night of the 8th and 9th of November. And on the 9th of November, the Berlin Wall comes down. <laughs> and I had no idea. I only found out like about 10 days later in the middle of Hungary that the wall had come down. Wow. It was mad it's madness. You know. So you missed David Hasloff. <laughs> I missed it all. You know, I, 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 well, actually, I caught the, the Czechoslovakian revolution. You know, I was in, in, in Prague when they were having their revolution. And my friends, who had in the meantime, my dissident friends who I played to in 1982, they'd all become like, you know, they're part of Václav Havel's kind of um, 
Obchansky Forum it was called, you know, it was like the the, the political kind of p- party and stuff. They were one of my friends, Stasha Vondra, he was the spokesman for the for for this Charter seventy seven movement. And he got put in prison and everything. And, you know, and when we were going through Czechoslovakia, he was in prison at this point, you know. We come back and we're on Wenceslas Square in the middle of Prague and with all these thousands of people protesting. And then this is been cheering. And then we went there like three days in, in a row, you know, every night to go and see what was happening. And then this is one night, this is big cheer, the ripple of kind of like excitement and that, like, wow, what's going on? You know, your skin was like, you know, hair standing up on end. It was like you knew something really positive had happened, you know. And I'm asking these kids, what's happening? Oh, the government have just resigned, you know, the Czechs, the communists have just resigned. And five minutes later on this balcony, there's my mate, you know, Sasha waving with Vaslav Havel and Alexander Dubček. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Wow. And uh, it was such a thrilling moment, you know. So I so, thought, all right, I missed the fall of the Berlin Wall. But at the same time, I caught, you know, something which was other, equally as interesting as with my friends in, in Prague as well. And you got really into, like, the East German electronic scene uh, around that, like, the late 80s into the 90s. I was well, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, their, their electronic scene back then was a bit kind of like, sort of like tepid tangerine dream impersonators. <laughs> but right, but when, when the wall came down, the the kid the younger kids like the sort of like 19 20 year old kids they'd been listening to western radio west berlin radio my friend monica Dietl, she had a radio show and which i you know if i got records from bought records or got records from the uk i'd set, give them her and we go through on thursday thursday nights we go through a, the records i've just got and you know with another friend of mine we'd just go take our records to her and she'd go through those and say i'll play that on the show play that on the show you know and these kids in East Berlin, they would listen to the radio, Western radio, religiously because it provided them with music that was not state-controlled. You know, it was this kind of like weird stuff, techno, you know, different, what's that, you know? And they had this impression that in West Berlin there's this massive techno party scene going on because Monica would like announce tonight in UFO Club there'd be this party. I mean, they had this impression that it was this massive scene. Because, you know, anything that was on the radio meant something powerful in East Germany. So they had no idea that we had one techno club in Berlin. It was about 50 square metres, you know, it was like nothing. So when the war came down, that's what they wanted to have. They wanted to have this techno scene. And it didn't really exist. It was one club, you know. So they started to make their own. And, and as, you know, after the... the reunification of Germany, all these places were suddenly kind of like open to, you know, what had been part of the wall defences, these derelict buildings which had formed part of the wall, they suddenly were empty and suddenly and there was no jurisdiction because they were in the middle of no man's land. And so so they were taken over and they put a generator in and a few turntables, the PA system and everything and another part of you know. And the, the, in the actual fact the reunification of Germany actually happened on the dance floor particularly there but like you know in other places you know before the re- actual reunification because you know these kids from the east wanted to experience something and they come to like clubs like the metropole or ufo and and it didn't matter whether you were from east germany or not no one cared you know it was like you just danced and took ecstasy and just danced all night and it didn't matter where you're from everybody loved each other and and you know the cold war had ended you know the threat of nuclear holocaust had ended and it was just a really beautiful feeling, you know, to not to be re- 
oh, you know, this, this spectre of death and, you know, destruction is gone, you know, like no longer this animosity, doesn't matter where you're from, what colour your skin was, you know. We could just, just like, just dance all night, you know. Nice. I wanted to ask you about Shark Vegas. I We should probably mention, I watched movie the other night i finally got a copy of the dvd in the states it was great and the soundtrack was awesome um, and i dug those shark vegas songs but i know nothing about the band so mm. tell me the story <laughs> oh well well from from the umbicanton was born shark vegas out of a desire to change our style if you like because the umbicanton were kind of like new wavy early like early punky kind of sound really because about inability to play it's more than anything else um but we, me and alistair we were kind of you know we were into this kind of high energy disco music i mean i'd been a fan from like the 70s but you know, the first time i heard donna summer i fell in love i knew that was it you know how did they make this record uh but i had no idea how they made it you know and it was like that's the kind of sound that i want to make you know something like that uh, but, and as things start, as machines started to get a little bit cheaper, sequences and synthesizers, our appreciators and stuff, um, it was like it was sort of more like what we wanted to do, you know. And we'd go to the Metropole Discotheque, which was the biggest gay disco in Europe. We went there religiously every Friday and Saturday night. And I'd been going there since the minute I got to Berlin. But like when I met Alistair, I dragged him down and it was like, wow, it was that big, huge place, and, you know, fantastically friendly atmosphere really nice and they played this kind of deep underground not kind of commercial disco music but they played kind of underground disco music that you took you probably only heard in paradise garage or someplace like this you know and um i was like that's the kind of music that we should be making you know? and then we got this uh, proposal this offer from bernard sumner asked, asked me if we wanted to go on tour with new order after they just released like Blue Monday, you know, and I, and I decided at that point to stop doing Factory actually because I, th I knew that Blue, Blue Monday was going to be a big record. And I thought, me and me flat, you know, I'm not going to be able to handle this. It's not, it's not really going to happen. So I said to, to Rob, like, you know, I think we should give this to a proper distributor and like let it happen. And, um, and so I stopped doing Factory. I, became, I was still their representative in Berlin, but you know, in Germany, but I was I wasn't actually physically releasing records or anything, you know. And so I said, let's do it with Rough Trade. I know the guys at Rough Trade would do it with them, and um, and it and it just kind of like took off, you know. And so as a kind of like consolation prize, Bernard asked us if we wanted to be their support act on the tour, you know, cheap, you know, get your mates on so you know, don't cost them, and. Um, and, we, and, and I decided, well, if we're going to go on an international, like a European tour, international tour, I don't want to be called Die Unbekanton. doesn't sound, you know, no one can say it anyway, so let's change our name. Well, it got two new members uh, just for the tour, and we said, let's, let's change our name to Shark Vegas. It was just it was like, it came to me in the night, you know, and it's like, had nothing, no meaning to it ever at all. And so we, we formed this band. You know, this new band order. We blew them off stage every night, of course, you know, as you do. And um, and then we got invited to play in New York at the Danceteria. Yeah. And Bernard's like, oh, I want, like, there's one song in your set. I really like that. Yeah. You hurt me. We should do that as a single, put, put it on Factory. And so we released it, or released You Hurt Me on Factory, Factory 111. 
it was. And my mate Mark Farrell was a designer, that a friend of mine from like you know seventies actually. And I uh, asked him, if, you know, would you design the cover for it? And he designed the cover. He went on to design the Pet Shop Boys covers, you know, and quite a few Factory Records covers as well. Nice. And um, and we did we did like we did the Danceteria, yeah, uh, in 1984. Wow. Which was quite a thrill actually. And 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 actually, the only reason for going to to New York wasn't to actually do this gig in the Danceteria. I just used it as an opportunity because <laughs> I only I only wanted to go and. Go to the to the Paradise Garage. <laughs> I didn't care about actually doing the gig, and I didn't care about the dancing. I got any fun house of any other clubs. You know, I just wanted to go to to see Larry Levan playing at Paradise Garage, and I was like, I'm determined to go there. And, we, and me and Alistair and Leo, our drummer, we went to to the Paradise Garage, and uh, we were the only white people in the in the in the in the line to get in. And this girl goes, she was like. You guys are not from here, I was like, no, we're from Berlin, Germany. She's like, Germany, wow, you know, like she goes, look, you won't get in if you try and get in. I'll sign you in as a member. I'll sign you in. So she signed us in, and we got in, and it was fantastic. I got to meet Larry Levan, and it was it was like just incredible, incredible sound system. I've never even heard a sound system like this in the club ever before, or since actually. Wow. And I was like totally blown away by it. And then, you know, that kind of formed everything in virtually <laughs> after that, you know, I was like, wow. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was mind blown. Yeah. And, and, and then, and then we did a compilation called, I think it was called young, snotty and sexism, you know, it's on factory America. Yeah. Uh, we put a track on that compilation and then, and then Alistair decided he wanted to go back to the UK and live in the UK. And so he left after that, shortly after that, and went back to the UK and left me here. And I started to dabble then in kind of acid house and, you know, techno and stuff. You were playing guitar in Shark Vegas? No, trying to. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to play guitar. (laughs) You know, I I still try, I'm still trying to play guitar. (laughs) Okay. I just got to know that with you. Yeah, I play keyboards and tape machine and, you know, synthesizer and, you know, and try to play guitar. Okay. Because yeah. in a B movie, I saw you yeah. on guitar in the, in the clips. Yeah, well, that clip in B movie, um, that's on the Glenica Bridge, which is known as the Bridge of Spies because it's where they exchange Gary Powers and stuff. And um, what the reason why that suit came about was. I previously made a, pre- a TV program for Britain for a British TV sh- channel called Time T's Television called The Tube, and I'd set up this this gig with D Hout on the bridge. And about a year or two later, two years later, um, this the precursor to MTV in the UK was a was a TV channel called Music Box, and they came to do a Berlin special. And the producer had heard about this this shoot on the bridge and wanted me to arrange that i play on this bridge like just he had no idea that it had taken me months to get permission to get you know and i was like i'm never i'm not going to be able to do it in 24 hours and and the thing is like we we shark vegas opened german cable television uh, in germany right and there was a big kind of celebration like event in the city center 
and they put this stage up. And the first thing that Germans saw on German cable television when they turned the telly on was my band. Yeah. And I was like, you know, we did this gig, and he was like, we have to do this. We have to make a, a video for the TV show. Can you arrange to play on the bridge? And I was like, oh god, it took, it took me months to do the do how to. I don't. It'll never happen. But but in the meantime, I got to know the people at AFN, right? And they had contacts to the authorities, of course. And so I got the head of AFN to like get us permits to to do this to do this shoot, but. There wasn't enough time to explain to the Russians on the opposite side of the bridge that we were going to be doing this, and so there was all this hullabaloo on the other side of the bridge. All of them going to invade, you know, basically invade. And the idea was like, we for our video, we decided that we were, it was supposed to be like spies coming out of the cold, being the spy bridge. You know, we're coming out of the cold. Now, if you look at the video, we've all got plasters on our heads and faces and stuff like, which kind of is supposed to kind of symbolize we've been tortured in communist German and we were being like coming coming out of the cold into the west you know that's not the idea behind this this video is so you took b movie like around the world like to china and colombia mm. tell me about those yeah. adventures yeah well yeah i mean you know this this movie actually it wasn't my idea to make this movie. Yeah. yeah. It, um, I, I, I mean, obviously, I've loads of footage and things I've done, but I, it wasn't. It wasn't my idea. Um, Jörg Hopper, who was the producer, he had this idea to make a film, which was like uh, there was a, a video a couple of years before called Berlin Super Eighties, which was like a kind of co a compilation of people's Super Eight movies from the eighties that had no soundtrack coupled together with music from that time uh like my band it on the is one part of one of the videos and you know other, other bands underground bands of no significance that you know they supplied the musical soundtrack for this kind of like experimental super eight films and Jörg had seen this and thought maybe we should do a more kind of expanded version like a 90 minute version kind of narrative of like the progression of berlin in 10 years um and he asked me if i would be prepared to do the soundtrack and do the rest restoration of the music so it'd sound good in the cinema. And as we were like talking, I was thinking, I've got like stuff there. Maybe I could vlog him a few, a few pieces of footage, and he could like you know get, get a bit of extra money <laughs> for making you know giving him this this, this the images of Berlin of the eighties. And then I started telling him my story, and he was like, "What? You know, I've changed I've changed my idea now. You know, what, what about?" you telling your story as a Brit coming to Berlin and being part of this Berlin scene, the things you did, um, it was an MB movie. And um, you know, about my life in Berlin in this kind of avant-garde scene, you know, over 10 years. And with this film, then I started to do, you know, uh, sh show it in different places, you know, and, with, and, and I showed it in South America, in Colombia, I did a tour of Colombia, and then I had this invitation to do a two-month tour of China with this film, which was a very interesting experience because it wasn't like kind of like really official as such, but it was sponsored by the Goethe Institute, and so having the Goethe Institute's sign of approval kind of like gave it this kind of flexibility, which, you know, it's not, it's not a film that's going to be shown in the cinema in China. Right? It's, it's a film that's being shown in 
clubs that had something to do with music scene of that particular city. So we'd be showing it in these dives, you know, like, like you know, they had club life since sort of like the mid nineties or whatever. You know, we take it for granted that you know, you know, music scenes kind of evolved almost at the same time. But like in, in China, that you know, they they only started to open up at the end of that, like not mid nineties, really. The first punk band emerged in nineteen ninety six, which is like twenty years after the first punk band in in the UK. You know, and it's like from that point on, they kind of started to open and start to get clubs and have live what they call live houses and stuff, concerts and stuff. Um, and so for them, it was all kind of really fresh in a sense, you know. And they were kind of fascinated to see this world of eighties Berlin that they didn't actually know about. You know. They'd never, they'd heard, you know, of things, but they didn't really know anything about it. And to see it on the screen and with original footage and everything, it was kind of like, you know, quite fascinating. And so I was giving lectures and stuff and explaining the background behind the film and the footage and things. And 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 I did a, a five-day kind of stint at this kind of um, art and film art music sort of academy uh, in Wuhan, which was fascinating, actually. And it was every night we'd show the film, every night I'd give a talk, and it was, like, packed out, you know, every night, you know. It was quite fascinating, yeah. And, you know, and, and, like, just like, like 2019, December 2019, I went to Moscow to show the film. And because of what it meant, you know, the 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 the, 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 the story, if you like, and the kind of, like, the... the um, inspiration it might give to young people you know i was getting quite a lot of negativity on the internet in russia you know like from people who didn't really want young people to see this movie yeah it's a shit film you don't want don't waste your time kind of thing wow. so we showed this movie in the biggest cinema in moscow yeah which just looked like it's got a mosaic on the outside from the the, the revolution you know because it's this big massive cinema from like stalin's time basically and it's bit like 650 people came to see the film, you know, and it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty impressive. And, you know, these activists, you know, I DJed for them in the form of paint, paint factory on the outskirts of the city, you know, and all these kind of activists are kind of like on the streets today going, you know, protesting against certain draconian measures that are being undertaken in, in Russia right now. And uh, for them, I was doing this thing and, you know, the, maybe the B movie inspired them in some way. I don't know, but um, I don't know if I'm going to be going to Russia very soon. <laughs> yeah. How would it go over in Colombia? Like I, I don't usually think of Colombia oh. as a synth pop type of place, but well, it, it isn't, and it is. You know, I mean, you know, it's very, it's very Latino, of course. But there was people who had Colombians who'd been in Berlin and they'd studied here or whatever, and they'd been hanging out here you know, been to parties and techno parties and stuff like that. And they wanted to bring a bit of that action back to Colombia, but also show them this film, you know, to sort of get a bit of an idea of like how the techno scene eventually event, event, evolved and from where it evolved from, you know, out of this ashes, if you like, you know. And so they, uh, they there was this festival called Ambulante Festival. It's like a kind of a musical film festival that kind of travels around Colombia. And I went with the film and we showed it 
they actually showed it in the jungle. I didn't go to the jungle shoot because they didn't have enough. It was, it was, I've no idea what happened there, but I know they, they went to the, into the jungle with the film and showed it there. Wow. But I did go to other places, you know, like to Medellin and stuff and uh, Bogota and we showed it all around. And it was, it, it was quite incredible, you know, because like we, we didn't just show it in the cinemas as well. We actually took it into the poor areas of the city, into the mountainsides where all the poor people live. And these kind of kids who kind of are quite well-off kids, I suppose, from rich families, they had a program which they go up into the favelas and stuff and they, and they teach these young kids like how to bake bread and, you know, how to make a skateboard and, you know, all these different things. And, and one evening they decided they were going to take us up into the mountains there and they'd put a big screen and they'd show this film for free, you know. And they did exactly that, you know, and the whole flipping town came to watch it. You know, they're like, what's going on? Yeah, they, they, I mean, they didn't even know where Berlin is, you know, let alone what, know what was going on, really. And they had Spanish subtitles, half of them couldn't read, you know, the little kids are translating for the old ladies, you know, what's going on. And, and when the film had finished, all these old ladies are coming up to me, like, hugging me and telling me, you know, you, you, know, you survived, you know, and they thought, they thought it all happened last week, you know. <laughs> No idea it was like in the 80s. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah. Wow. So I want to talk to you about your new record. Um, okay. Yeah. It came out last fall, is that right? No, no, it came, I, I released um, my, my album with Elena Chosna, who's a Lithuanian singer. Uh, we called Children of Nature, the LP. We released it on the 26th of May. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And my mum's birthday. Yeah. yeah. Which was 96, I thought, you know, I'll give her a 96 birthday present and release my album on her birthday. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, that was also a, a thing, you know, like I, I'd taken my movie to Lithuania and uh, to Vilnius and showed it at a film festival there. A big film festival, you know. It was, it was, it was actually, it was actually the like the big kind of celebration event of the year, kind of thing. This film festival in Vilnius. It was in this kind of palatial building, like opera house. The president of the nation came and gave the opening speech, and then people performed on stage. And they and I'd arrived in the afternoon, and they went, "Oh, I've decided you can be on this, you know, perform." I'm like, "What am I supposed to do?" You know, not an instrument. And they went, "Oh, no, just." Just, just, you know, just play some of your music. Just DJ, just DJ. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to DJ. You know, they've got like two decks and two turntables and CD players, you know, and on this big stage. And I'm thinking, okay. And, and then they went, yeah, um, yeah, you can just DJ and, you know. And there's people on stage doing all these kind of gigs, you know, they like play, someone playing a ukulele, someone playing a piano. And, acrobats and all this kind of thing. and then it's like me you know and it's like, I'm like oh yeah you can only play one song i mean well that's not dj yeah but then no one will know you know like, so so you know i'm on stage and the compares there and he says oh mark you know like what you know what you're going to be showing your film b movie at the festival and everything yeah and what you're going to play for us tonight and i've just done a remix for new order yes um of one of the tracks off the album music complete and I thought I'm going to play that you know? and they said oh so, yeah so I said what, what are you going to do and I just pointed a finger like this and I'm just going to press play and so I press play and the music starts and I'm looking at like you know 
like Lithuania's like you know nomenclature is like the, you know generals in the army and kind of all these women in nightgowns and blokes with like you know bow ties on and everything and evening dress and it's like what's in all these people and I could see their faces kind of change from this kind of smile to this kind of like oh. I'm thinking oh god is it that bad it's really I, I couldn't wait for it to be over you know I was like I couldn't even look at the audience because I was so it was so embarrassing. I was like, what am I doing standing here watching this CD player, you know, twiddling the knobs trying to get the sound to sound better. And I was like, oh, God, you know, got off stage. I was like, I'll never want to do that ever again. And then this guy comes to me and he went, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. And he introduced himself. He was a singer. And, uh, I said, it was fantastic, you know. And, and then he explained to me that behind, I didn't know this, behind me was this massive screen. And they've been showing the clip, like kind of like a trailer of, from B-Movie in the background, right? And all this kind of rioting and nudity and everything. And I was like, oh gosh, okay. So and that's why everyone was kind of looking so shocked, you know. <laughs> it wasn't me at all. And um, and, it, and we got chatting and we said, yeah, I'm going to come to the after party. And so I did a DJ at the after party, at this after party, after, the, after this performance. I actually did go do some DJ. And had everybody dancing in this club, you know, it's quite nice. And um, and next day I went and met him. And uh, as I went for this meeting the next day, I'm walking through the town, you know, everyone's kind of waving at me and smiling, going, hey, hello, hello, hello. And I'm like, <laughs> and then I get to this place and this guy, oh, I saw you last night, you know. And I didn't realise it had been broadcast on national television, this event. And in the middle of the city centre, they erected this kind of like four million square meter TV screen so that like you know, thousands and thousands of people could stand in the freezing cold and watch this, watch this uh, opening ceremony to their set film festival. So I want to see it, and so everybody knew how it was. It was really weird, and so I just like you know got to talking to Alan Ash, Chosen, discovered he'd been in this band in you know the first kind of pop band after the. The, the fall of communism, you know, he, he, he himself is Iraqi. He's a born in Baghdad. His mother is Lithuanian. His father was in, an Iraqi. And um, when Saddam Hussein started you know, gassing his own people kind of thing, he, he's an Iraqi Kurd. So he decided his mother said, like, you know, go back, go to Lithuania and live there. And so he grew up in Lithuania during the eighties. And, uh, and when the fall communists, you know, the Russians just, you know, gave the Lithuania his independence, um, he f did the thing that he'd always wanted to do and form, formed a band. So he was like one of the first kind of like pop artists of like new free Lithuania, you know, and he had this kind of symbolism and status and stuff. And uh, yeah, he was a very nice chap. And I just like, you know, thought, okay, let's try and do something. We got, I got this proposal from this French film director um, to make a song for, for a film called the call of the wolf which was kind of like a cold war contemporary cold war thriller submarine thriller about a submarine and he needed, he needed a love song and he, he liked my music and he asked me if i'd like my, my love song and i thought well that's kind of awesome he wants to sing it and we'll do something together and see where it goes you know and so he sang this one song on the album called losing my mind and uh, we ended up making an album together Uh, we were talking about Depeche Mode before the interview mm -hmm. started, but it, as soon as I put yeah. it on, I was like, this is that sort of dark, uh, you know, feel that, you know, 
all my favorite Depeche Mode stuff as. Yeah, well, you know, that, that, that has been my, you know, inspiration too. I mean, I know, you know, Daniel Miller and all these guys, you know, and it's like, you know, Martin Goisel in Berlin for a while with the, the girlfriend uh, who lived in a flat house that was friends of mine lived in and stuff. So it's really, they're quite close to me too, in a sense, as much as New Order. And, um, you know, that's the kind of music that I make, really. And I've always made, really. You know, mm. If you listen to The Undercut, it's not that far removed from what I'm still doing today, really. And that's Sharp Vegas, really, for that matter. You know. Still kind of like dancey, but kind of dark, you know. Mm. Not really moved on anywhere, really, have I? <laughs> Just that sounds a bit better these days. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. You got anything else you want to add? What's, what's coming up? You still there? What's coming up? Um, what's coming up is my... You hear me now? Yeah. I'm, have I gone? We're good. Yeah. Uh, we're good, yeah. Um, the, what's coming up next is my remix for New Order. I did a remix for Be A Rebel. And that comes out, I think, in like March, beginning of March. That's the next release, I think. And I'm also planning um, a, an album, which is going to probably be, I mean, it'll be like a double album when it's physical, yeah, mm. for sure, because it's quite a few tracks. But, um, you know, that's going to be, first of all, I'm going to release it digitally simply for the reason that the pressing plants are overwhelmed with a backlog because of the lockdown. So they already had, they already had like a six month waiting list, but with the lockdown kind of, that's kind of multiplied. And with this added third lockdown, it's kind of like tripled it. So this, you know, physical releases are really kind of, you're going to have to wait really. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to release it digitally for, for the interim. And then when eventually get around to making a physical record, I will, you know, because I love records. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, you can't you can't collect an MP3. You know what I mean. You can't you know having a stream. It's I don't I don't do streaming. I'm not in, I'm not into that. It's not my world. You know, I like to actually be able to hold a record in my hands and yeah. look at it and kind of put it in the in the collection and kind of look at it and bring it out and play it whenever I want and you know not be kind of like held hostage by whatever the streaming platform decides it wants to have on its platform because if they say you know that record, we don't like it, it's off. I mean, what do you do then? You know, if that's your favourite song and yep. they decide they don't like it, well, you, you know, that's it, you're done, you know. You'll never hear it again, you know. Look at some kind of watered-down, you know, 120KB version of, like, on, on YouTube or something, you know, it's like, nah, I'm not into that. I want to have, have something physical in my hands. I want to be able to hold it and feel it and smell it and touch it and play it whenever I want and not be held hostage to some streaming service or something so yeah I, I do want my music to be physical you know and to be collected by people because mm. it can give a you can give a record as a gift you know you give an mp3 to someone as a gift what do you fuck you know like it's, like, it's not interesting yeah, yeah. so so that someone someone next my next album will be i don't know i don't i've not i've not set a release date yet but i'm still in the process of putting it together but I reckon it'll be sort of like, uh, you know, April or something like that. Yeah. Cool. Well, maybe we'll talk again then. 
Possibly. Awesome. <laughs> well, uh, any, any, any time. You know. All right. Always a pleasure to talk to Mark about all the cool stuff he's done these past 40 years. I'm already looking forward to having him back on the show when his next record comes out. I've really been digging his latest one, Children of Nature, from last year, as he said. Do check it out if you dig Depeche Mode-esque synth pop. And B-Movie really gives a great view of 1980s Berlin. I really recommend watching if you can find it. In Southpaw news, well, I'm still working on new stuff. That'll be coming soon. In the meantime, there's 53 episodes of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast for you to listen to, 34 other episodes of this podcast, etc., etc., and a whole bunch of stuff over on YouTube, including like old live shows and whatnot. Check them all out. And as always, much appreciated if you want to subscribe, review, or share these. Thanks very much for listening, y'all. I'm going to play you out with one of my favorite songs from Mark's latest album, Children in Nature. This one's called All Alone.